We read last week of how the king's drunken pride got the better of him as he fairly selfishly got rid of one wife and she failed to perform in front of the people he wanted to impress. And then we carry on in chapter 2, verse 1. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she'd done and what had been decreed against her. Notice the passive voice, as if it just happened. Then the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of the kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the citadel, into the hands of Hege, the king's eunuch, who guards the women and provides their cosmetics. And let the young women the young woman who pleases the king, be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa the citadel whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Simshay, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is, Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's matter and his edict were proclaimed, and when... Many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, into the hands of Hegege. Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put into the hands of Hege, who guarded the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he hurried to provide her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day after day, Mordecai walked back and forth in front of the court of the harem to learn of Esther's well-being and what was happening to her. Now, when the turn came for each young woman to go in to King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulation for the women, since this was the regular period for their beautifying, six months with the oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman was sent into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, And in the morning, she would return to the second harem into the hands of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch who guarded the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abigail, the uncle of Mordecai, who'd taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, She asked for nothing except what Hege, the king's eunuch, the guard of the women, advised. Now, 
Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tabesh, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king threw a great banquet for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's banquet. He also granted a tax break to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Now, when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people just as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Terash, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged, or probably better, impaled on a wooden spike. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king, after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamdatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. Well, how do you introduce a heroine? It depends on the kind of story you're telling, doesn't it? If this were a Disney movie, then the scene would open with the shutters of a window being flung open by a beautiful girl with ribbons in her hair. There would be bluebirds chirping and fluttering around her. The robins would be making her beds. And we would know this is the one to watch. The book of Esther, though, introduces its heroes in a far darker way. There was a Jew in Susa the Citadel whose name was Mordecai a man whose ancestors have been dragged away from Jerusalem, four times we're told it. And there in exile, as all that was left of his family clung on for survival, he was bringing up a young girl, his cousin, who had nobody else in the world, an orphan. No mother, no father, but they'd given their daughter one thing, before they died, she was born with a terrible mark of destiny on her body. You see, verse 7, this young girl is devastatingly beautiful. Now, you might think, what is so terrible about that? But in the opening scene of this book, we caught a glimpse of raw, selfish human power at its most unpredictable in a terrifying form, all concentrated in the hands of one man who rules the world, Ahasuerus, king of kings, king of all lands. And now we're told that this king of kings is scouring his empire for one thing and one thing alone. Verse 2, 
Verse 3, a beautiful young virgin to use and possess. So when the writer introduces us to this orphaned exile in the very next breath and tells us twice that she has the sort of beauty that casts spells on everyone around her, well, we know exactly what it means, don't we? This is the one to watch. Her fate is sealed from the moment she's introduced. Not for anything she has done or can do, but simply because, quite literally, she was born for this. And so here's the strange thing about this chapter. We find ourselves cheering when our heroine is rounded up and carted off to the palace. We find ourselves rooting for her as she gets put through to the final round of this gruesome empire-wide beauty contest. We find that we want her to win. We want her to do well when she's given her one night with the king and a chance to pleasure this ghastly man. We know that this whole horrible charade is a dark, exploitative thing. It's like some dystopian version of Persia's Got Talent, where the contestants are manipulated and have no say in the rules and probably little choice even about taking part. And yet we find that if we had a vote, we would actually vote for Esther to win. We're caught up in it. We want her to go all the way, which is a little disturbing, isn't it? But it's because we as readers of the story have picked up on the clues that I suspect kept Esther going as she was in the story. We've realized that in some mysterious way, she was born for this. And we get a sense that there are bigger things at stake. Imagine growing up in a Jewish home and every year of your life, you celebrate the festival that this book introduces, the Feast of Purim. Every year of your life, you read out this story together, the way some families like to read a Christmas carol every December. The kids act out the play in all its gory details. The men drink every time Mordecai's name gets a mention. And it is so familiar that you know exactly what is coming ahead of every twist and turn. Well, how would you read this dark episode in chapter 2? You'd enjoy it, wouldn't you? Because you know what's coming. Here is the God who writes every story, beautifully setting up his plot, the downfall of evil through something dark and evil. The writer wants us to see this as nasty and abusive, and yet he also wants us to enjoy it because we know as readers that there are two contests raging in this chapter, not just one. There is the human drama of Esther's plight, Mordecai's worry for his young ward, two lives out of millions lived at the mercy of a corrupt selfish human power that they cannot control, plunged, in Esther's case, into a beauty contest which ultimately morphs into a horrifying sex contest. That's what this is. All to see who will be crowned as the next queen consort. There's the human drama. 
But by the end of the chapter, it's also very obvious that there is a second contest raging behind that one, an unseen battle between much bigger powers, a holy war between two cosmic forces and their two lines of human seed, the people of the God of Israel and their most ancient of enemies. And through this apparently powerless human struggle, even as the powerful seem to hold all the cards, God is preparing the ground to bash in the skull of our ancient foe. Here they are lost in exile, languishing far from home, where all the powers of human oppression are writ large, and the God of their fathers seems invisible. But he promised right at the start of the Bible that darkness and death would not get the last word, that the seed of his people would crush the head of the serpent, their great adversary. So will this God, who seems so far away now, keep his promise? In this age where nothing looks supernatural anymore, where human power is all that counts, is the true king of kings still willing to get blood on his heels for the sake of his children? Well, chapter two is the end of the beginning to this book, and it tells us that the answer to that is a resounding yes. So let's look then at how both of those contests play out. First, there's the one we can see, the one our heroes are plunged headlong into, an ugly parade of beauty. And it shows us that on a human level, God's people are often caught up in a contest we cannot control, where the strong and the selfish reign. The way the story is painted, it's as though King Ahasuerus wakes up from his hangover, and when he calms down from his anger, he remembers what he's done. He had the Ferrari of brides, a woman fit for the most powerful man in the world, but he's humiliated himself and thrown her away. And so as his young attendants soothe his ego, they talk him into what, even by Persian standards, is a pretty stupid plan. If an Achaemenid empire needed another concubine, then by all means, the king could go out and get one just like this. The histories tell us that they were deliberately talent-spotted, these concubines, scouted out for their beauty, for their skill, for their musical talent. And the life of a concubine was better than the life of many in the empire. They were fed, honored, guarded. A harem was a very different place to the way we might imagine it, more royal court than hedonistic pleasure palace. And they didn't live the kind of oppressive purder that we might imagine. They, the exclusiveness they lived in, the separation from the public gaze, was what gave this life its prestige. This is how royalty worked. But for a low-ranking concubine, it was still very much a life lived entirely as a plaything of the king. That's not, though, what he's looking for here. He's not on the hunt for another concubine. He has hundreds. He's on the hunt for a consort, a queen. 
only a handful of women in this harem would ever rise to that position. And that was a position of real importance for the empire, real influence. Never some lowly peasant, very rarely a foreigner. Choosing a queen is a matter of duty. It's true for any absolute ruler, isn't it? He has a dynasty to secure, alliances to cement, all for the good of the realm, for stability. So this is a place for the daughters of powerful khans, for women who can bolster your claim to the throne. One professor of ancient Iran is astonished by all the historicity of this book of Esther, but for all the riches of the detail that it gives, he says, for this reason, it's surely a fairy tale. Here's what he writes. We've already noted that Achaemenid monarchs do not take foreign consorts. The prospect of a Jewish girl, no matter how beautiful, reaching the rank of royal wife was negligible. Well, with respect to the professor, the author of Esther is way ahead of him. The whole point is that this is an impossible story with impossible odds. But here is a king who is not acting wisely and for the good of his kingdom. There are just two criteria for what he's looking for. She has to look beautiful and perform well in bed. It is utterly self-indulgent. So once again, here he is being painted as an inverted messiah, an antichrist, very explicitly looking for a consort to please himself, verse 4, and to make him look fabulous. And once again, we see the most powerful man in the world just following the advice of the people there to flatter him. Everyone else in his kingdom is ultimately just a plaything to be used by him. Human power then without Jesus, not used Jesus' way, can be a terrifying thing. But God is going to use this man's extraordinarily unusual and selfish rule to subvert that human power for the gospel. Well, the talent spotters don't have to go very far before Esther catches their eye. It turns out she's living right there in the citadel with her cousin Mordecai, who has some sort of low-ranking position in the administration. That's why he sits at the king's gates later on. That's where the lawyers and the bureaucrats do their work. And this seems like a trivial bit of detail at first, but it turns out that these two have royal blood as well. Mordecai is known constantly as Mordecai the Judean in this book because he represents the last survivors of Judah, the people of promise, the, the hope of the world. But in fact, verse 5, he's originally from the tribe of Benjamin, descended from a man named Kish, who, if you are very good at your Bible facts, you might remember as the father of King Saul. And by the end of the chapter, that trivial little bit of history will look very, very big. Well, at verse 8, the story goes the way we know it will. Esther is taken along with the other beautiful girls, and that's where we want to know all sorts of things that the writer doesn't seem too interested in telling us. 
We want to know if she went willingly or if she was taken by force. The truth is we can't really know. Some people make a lot of the passive language in verse 8 that she was taken, but the truth is that's pretty like the normal Hebrew idiom for marriage. You take a wife. We know there was ferocious hierarchy and competition among the women to earn the king's favor. The scholar Karen Jobes points out that in many ways, these women got a much better deal than many others. Babylonia alone, one province, had to pay tribute every year of 500 boys who were ripped away from their families to be castrated and serve as eunuchs in this court. So this is not a world where a king like Jesus rules in love. This is a world where the strong and the selfish rule their way. Some of these women would have probably leapt at the chance for a better life. Some would have been insulted that they were left behind. Others would have fought against it and been slowly broken down. But the reality is that her whole life up to this point has been in the hands of others. She's had no agency or control over any of it, and probably she's just resigned to that by now. You see that most starkly in verses 12 to 14, where the rules for the final round get set out. These women would spend a year of their lives being perfumed and purified and taught the tricks of the trade, all for one night with the king. And when he's done with them, they're moved away to the senior harem, to the house of the concubines, never to be used again unless he remembers them and calls them by name. So one whole year of their lives sacrificed to satisfy one night of his. This is not a world where a king like Jesus rules in love. This is a world where the strong and the selfish rule their way. And so little wonder for day after day, for over a year, Mordecai paces back and forth outside the women's court waiting to hear if she's okay, thinking, what on earth is God doing with these people he once loved? And in the background, that ominous last command of his in verse 10, Esther, don't tell them who you are keep your head down because that's how we survive. Maybe they have a sense already that there is more going on here than the immediate human drama. Esther has a chance now to be in a position of influence that no Jewish woman ever normally gets a shot at. Or maybe Mordecai is all too aware of what will soon be very clear, that God's people living in a dark human empire, have every reason to be afraid. And yet against all the odds, by verse 18, it is this vulnerable, powerless Jewish girl who wears the queen's crown. First, for no humanly obvious reason, she wins favor with Hege, the eunuch who oversees the lower harem. He hurries her, in verse 19, right to the front of the queue, Verse 9, sorry. She's given a staff of her own, 
seven servants to look after her. And then in verse 15, when her turn comes, he gives us some advice. They can take whatever they want, these girls, for their one night with the king. Pick your lingerie, your perfume, your tricks, and your toys. And yet she takes nothing except what Hege suggests. You see, she hasn't chosen this situation. But when she's trapped in it, it's amazing how much she honors those around her. She acts wisely, humbly. She listens to advice. And I think Jim Phillip is right. She decides to face the most terrifying night of her life, relying on an entirely different kind of charm to all the other girls. If God wants her here, he will use her as he made her. She doesn't need to tart herself up. Well, that night arrives at last for her in verse 15. And notice how the story slows right down. We get all her information once again. We're reminded of her powerlessness, her background. But there's one more thing. This time, we're given her father's name. Do you see that? And at one level, that name is deeply painful and ironic. Avichail. It means my father is strength. What a heart-rending name for a fatherless girl to carry in a position like this. I wonder, though, if it's a very subtle way of telling us that when everything in her life is out of her hands, she still knows whose hands she is in. My father is strength. Then in verse 16, we get a timestamp just to drag out the suspense even more. It's telling us that this one night matters more than anyone yet knows. She spent a whole year of her life, yes, preparing for this, and the pressure and the fear must have been terrible. But what she can't yet know is that the history of the world is hanging on this night. God will use this one night to make her queen. And he will make her queen so that she's in the right time and the right place to make one decision, the one decision of her life over which she really will have control. And God will use that one decision to save an entire people from genocide. And God will use that one people to save the world from sin and judgment through Jesus, his son. So Esther wins the king's heart, and at least for a time, verse 17, this vulnerable Jewish girl is loved in his own selfish way by the most powerful man in the world. Not for long enough to make it into the secular history books. She never produces an heir for him or anything that matters in man's kingdom. But she becomes his favored consort for long enough to make it into the Bible and long enough for God's purposes. And if we're paying attention, this is a story we've seen play out before, isn't it? Last time round, it was a young Jewish boy cast into a pit, sold into powerless slavery, but raised up to the heart of an evil empire, to a position of power, 
to save his people. There are stories like this that echo all through the Bible. God uses what looks weak and powerless, and he does wonderful things. Which brings us, before we close, to the bigger battle behind this chapter. We started with the human struggle that she and Mordecai are caught in, but the writer finishes up by giving us a preview of the big drama of this book and two men who end up on a spike. But gruesome as that might seem, this is an ending we ought to cheer because it takes us from that ugly parade of beauty to a beautiful impaling of ugliness. The contest is over. The virgins are gathered again in verse 19, presumably to be sent home because they're no longer needed or perhaps to be sent to the second harem to live out their lives as ordinary concubines. And Mordecai is sitting in his place at the king's gate when one of the many things that just happens to happen in this book just happens to happen to him. Somehow or other, information comes to his knowledge about two officials in the king's guard who have a grudge against the king and are plotting to take his life. And you might want to ask, why would Mordecai get involved here? It seems like he survived by quietly going about his life in Susa and keeping his head down in a world where he's warned Esther to hide her Jewishness. Why would he get involved? He can't have any love for this king. He can't know for sure which side will come out on top if the court spirals into chaos. But presumably, he gets involved because he knows it's the right thing to do. And so he seeks the welfare of the city that he's found himself in. He seeks the good of those in authority over him, no matter how awful they are. And he passes the warning on through Esther to the king. The traitors are discovered. The king is saved. Mordecai is the man of the hour. And so now is when we're expecting everything to come right, isn't it? Our heroine wears the queen's crown. And now surely our hero is going to be rewarded and their suffering will be over. And everyone will live happily ever after. Except that that book of the Chronicles is put back on its shelf. And for now, it's forgotten all about. But you see, the God of Esther is a master of comic timing. And this book of Chronicles has a part to play in one of his very best jokes where timing will be everything. Now, it must have been agonizing to Mordecai to see it forgotten while the one person he wants to protect is still trapped inside the palace for some mysterious purpose they can't yet understand. God's jokes don't feel very funny when we're in them and we can't yet see the punchline. Five agonizing years will tick by now, but then one more time, we'll be taken inside the king's bedroom late at night for one more sleepless evening where the salvation of the world hangs in the balance. And God will bring this book back off the shelf in the most satisfying way imaginable. 
For now, though, at just the moment when we expect to hear about Mordecai's reward, we read that a random bloke called Haman the Agagite is raised up instead to the highest position in the kingdom. But are things as random as they seem? Already this book has been full of unfortunate events, hasn't it? They've all looked like chance, but there's always been more going on. And so now is the time to pull that one little fact in Mordecai's biography that we filed away in verse 5 out of our memories. Mordecai too has royal blood, remember? But his ancestor, King Saul, was not a great king. In fact, he lost his throne through an ancient feud with a king called Agag. Now, we'll meet Agag and his seed in more detail next time. But for now, all we need to know is that he belongs to the oldest and bitterest enemy of the people of God, a line of people who once tried to wipe out the nation of Israel before they even reached the promised land, a line God has promised to destroy, but Saul failed and Israel paid the price. So what are we being told then when we see Saul's distant descendant passed over in exile and an ancient blood enemy raised above him instead? We're being told that this small human drama for Esther and Mordecai is part of something much, much bigger, a battle for the gospel itself. Notice what has happened then by the end of the prelude. Two lines of humanity have been traced out under two king of kings. Two times already, the world has been blessed through Abraham's seed. Esther is made queen, and verse 18 a whole suffering empire is given a tax break and celebration. Mordecai does the righteous thing, and the life of a sinful pagan king is spared. They are two powerless exiles caught up in events, but already they have been a blessing to the world in a way that Israel has not been for a long, long time. God is keeping some very ancient promises here. And a pattern's been established where Esther can act as a go-between, a mediator to bring salvation. There is shadow after shadow in both of their lives of the mediator who will save the world through what looks like powerless suffering. The one who pulls down the mighty from their seats, even while he's being crucified by the powers of the world. Two times already, God's people have had their heels bruised in the battle with evil. Esther exploited and abused. Mordecai passed over and unrewarded. And the real enemy has only just shown his head. But by the end of the prelude, already there are two dead snakes hanging on wooden spikes. And this is only the preview. By the end of the book, there will be dead snakes lying everywhere. 
because the true king of kings has not left the field. And he is still willing to get blood on his heels for the children he loves. You see, there is more going on in that powerless human struggle than God's people can see as they're living through it. We're being taught that they are combatants in a battle they cannot see where sinners are blessed and serpents are bludgeoned. Esther hasn't chosen any of this. Neither has Mordecai. They're here because of consequences of sin long ago. It's not the life God's people are meant to be leading. And yet, Esther has quite literally been born into a holy war. And no matter how much she might want to, she cannot escape it. Do you notice how she was introduced to us up in verse 7 with two names? She has a torn identity to grapple with, doesn't she? To those who know her, she's Hadassah, the powerless Jewish girl. To the world, she's Esther, the Persian concubine. And she will try for a while to hide the first and to live in the second. But eventually, she will have to let those two identities come together. And I wonder if some of us can relate to that. We're living with a foot in two worlds, one at school, one at home. And it is so tempting to put our heads down and to try and blend in with the world forever. The thing is, you've been born into a world where a spiritual war is raging. And if you're a Christian, or you're growing up in a Christian home, then you've been born into a battle that you cannot hide from. Your baptism marks you out for that conflict. There's been a mark placed on your body from your earliest days, just like Esther. And maybe we want to run and hide from that, but Jesus claims us. Now, our battles will not look as dramatic as hers, but what was true for her is true for us. We will live through a war that we cannot fully see or understand or remotely control. Often we will feel as though our lives are being pushed around by all sorts of things we can do nothing about. We're trapped in morally ambiguous situations. We're living with the consequences of past sin or foolish choices or unwise marriages mistakes we made long ago, or perhaps even mistakes people before us made. But we don't need to be in control of our lives for God to be in control of our salvation. Here were two human lives, two of thousands throughout history, who God used and shaped through confusion and cost and faithful suffering, along with a eunuch's favor and an emperor's lust and a bit of gossip in a marketplace. And God has woven that all seamlessly and secretly in a perfect way, all to make sure that his son was born to die for you and crush the skull of your accuser. So if this teaches us nothing else, it teaches us that we are safe in his hands, 
even when we can't feel them there. The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Well, let's bow our heads and praise him. Heavenly Father, forgive us, we pray, for the times that we doubt that you hold us safe or that you know what you're doing. Forgive us for the times we think our lack of control over our lives means that we can't trust you or persevere with Jesus. Forgive us for the ways we get so wrapped up in our human battles that we lose sight of what you have done for us in him. Thank you for the way you have shaped all of history to keep your promises and redeem our souls and break the claim of hell over our lives. Thank you for a king who rules in love and not in selfish power. So keep our eyes on him, we pray, in his strong and gentle name. Amen.